Hello and welcome to Codish, an exploration of the lives of modern developers. Join us as we dive into topics like languages and frameworks, data and event-driven architectures, and individual and team productivity, all tailored to developers and engineering leaders. This episode is part of our Heroku in the Wild series. Hi, this is Greg Noakes, Master Technical Architect with Heroku. Today I'm going to be talking with Amar and James. And we're going to be talking about some of the difficulties of delivering bespoke solutions in a regulated world. So, Amar and James, if you could give a little bit about yourselves. I'm Amar Akhtar. I'm the CEO and uh, one of the founders at uh, Yabota. And we are a core banking uh, systems uh, vendor. We have, uh, we've been going for around four and a half years, based out of London, uh, and have in that time built um, a completely uh, new core banking engine, ultimately, which lets clients of ours um, set up financial products, distribute them um, through online channels, ultimately sort of onboard customers um, and run sort of pricing calculations and life cycling uh, routines on them. Uh, my name is James Maitland. I'm head of technical operations at Yabota. I joined about three years ago, um, just a week before we launched live with our first client, and I'm focused basically on building the uh, teams and processes that mean that we're live in production without issues or uh, downtime. So as running a banking platform, are you doing complete like end-to-end banking? So from you know customer acquisition through running the person's checking account, letting them log in and looking at it? We offer a financial products engine. Uh, essentially, so it's not we wouldn't have sort of checking accounts or, or current accounts okay. as we as we call them uh, here. We essentially offer loans and deposits, and then it's kind of up to our clients to essentially define how they want those products uh, to work through our product configuration engine. Right now, with what we have uh, running out in the wild, we're running sort of consumer loans um, of, of various descriptions. And uh, fixed-term deposit accounts, fixed-term savings accounts, um, uh, essentially. Some of the conversations we're having is sort of taking, particularly on the deposit side, going beyond that um, into something that kind of looks feels more like sort of instant access savings and potentially into that sort of current account, checking account sort of space as well. Mm-hmm. As part of doing that, we're, we're not the bank, we're not the kind of regulated entity, but we have to provide a service and build a service that ultimately can meet the regulatory needs of all of our clients, right? We have to sort of address the superset of all of that um, in terms of how we kind of produce our software uh, and get it shipped through to multiple sort of production instances. Yeah. So that would be, or in the US, that would be a very highly regulated industry. I'm sure it is worldwide as well. Yeah. So how does that impact your design decisions? How does that impact your technology decisions? You know the timing of how we've done this has been um, has been pretty fortunate in in certain senses, uh, particularly in the UK and then and then Europe ultimately sort of uh, from 2015 2016 onwards, where the regulators have given some pretty favourable guidance on the use of cloud technologies and the use of uh, outsourced vendors in 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 that space. So because of that, you know we when we set up and you know we were a very small team uh, for the first couple of years, including when 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 James joined us. We were looking at uh, at how we can safely build a platform that's got decent, you know, very decent control of the of the underlying infrastructure that, that the code itself runs on, but also sort of um, know what's changed, when it's changed, have sort of good integrations into other sort of um, 
controlling technologies that can that can help us automate uh, various aspects of our uh, of our overall kind of release processes and uh, and build processes and, and so on. And then sort of Heroku was an obvious candidate for that, just based on it gave us a lot of flexibility. Where that then leads us is kind of being able to illustrate to any of our clients at any point in time that yeah, this stuff is still fit for purpose and we're still using it and essentially kind of um, delivering our service in the way that we said we would despite you know all the sort of changes in the underlying software that, that get developed and, and, and shipped every week a critical part of that is around the uh, audit side of being a compliant industry so as a service provider the banks that use us as a service they're audited by the financial conduct authority in the uk and as part of the audit that they have to go through we go into that audit um, as a service provider. So we need to do things like, for instance, look at every single release we've done over the last year. Um, They will pick a random selection of those, and we then have to demonstrate that uh, we know uh, who performed that release, who approved that release, uh, whether the release worked or not. And so having the platform features to be able to look back across the estate and go, I can see what happened when without having to have you know, a large amount of internal paperwork is very valuable, you know, particularly in SME. We don't have a team of 30 people sitting there generating compliance outputs. Um, we're a very small, quite agile team and we're still much smaller when we launched. Um, so that's a critical part of the sort of platform side. A lot of that also sort of links into kind of availability and uptime as well, because you, you, you have to guarantee that the system will be available, accounts will be you know, life cycled um, in a in a timely fashion. You're not going to have sort of payments being registered sort of days late or anything like that. So, the whole sort of set of choices that we made were cognizant of those sorts of factors as well. That uh, you know, this has to be a modern, always up, real time sort of banking engine uh, that's also actually going to work as a as a managed service that, that sort of gets provided to many, many, many regulated clients um, in diverse regions. It's a huge project in that sense. Yeah, I, I imagine it is. And does does having the Heroku platform attestations of security help with that? Um, is it something that you then you can bring in? As you're brought in as a service provider, do you bring in your service provider and so on and so forth down the chain? Yeah, I mean, it's there's a few different dimensions in that because, you know, there are things like GDPR, data regulations, um, and data privacy regulations in, that have come in recently where, you have to sort of give a level of transparency into the supply chain that you provide into your clients. And, you know, sort of everyone is sort of connected that way. You also have to essentially be able to demonstrate that the vendors you're choosing are the the right vendors and are going to be able to essentially ensure that everyone remains compliant and everyone remains sort of on the, on the right side of, of the regulations. And then with financial services being what it is, there's kind of the other element of it, which is, you know, there are so many different providers for specific little things in, in the overall value chain, like payment processing or, um, you know, ID checking or credit decisioning and all this sort of good stuff that you have to do when you're opening an account or maintaining an account or lifecycling it as you, over the time it's open. So you have to do sort of similar due diligence as you're going through there and, you know, the infrastructure choices that those companies make and those teams make are not necessarily going to be the same as yours. So being able to have uh, something in the middle that's stable and that's, uh, that's reliable is really important as well. I'm sure that the, the the platform gives you some level of agility, some level of, to evolve your product in response to customer and customer of customers requests as well. That's sort of one of the critical things we found about using the platform is 
don't treat it as you know, effectively a data center in the cloud using the facilities um, like the APIs that are available to be able to do sort of fast, reliable deployments. Um, it's sort of critical to, to gaining value out of it. One of the advantages we had was we spent a long time as a company without having a dedicated system administration team because we could use sort of the, the, the admin sites, the APIs to, to manage the platform just between the sort of development and support teams. It avoided us having people who are just sitting there doing things like, you know, upgrading VMs, which is a huge time sink for a small company. As somebody who used to upgrade VMs and used to upgrade servers, I, I appreciate that comment because <laughs> that was drudgery, but important drudgery back then. So the platform gives you the ability to evolve quickly and the platform gives you the agility to do safe deployments that are observable and are discoverable. You know, do you talk to your customers or do you get all your requirements from direct banks that you work with? Um, how do you how do you put uh, features into your pipeline? We're a B2B, you know, we, we have very limited interaction with our clients and customers. Um, you know, a lot of what we're doing is is trying to understand what it is our clients are doing as businesses and making sure that there are clean APIs that allow them to do that or have, uh, you know, a set of features that will essentially match up with their future roadmaps or, or kind of give them guidance on when they would be able to, to do certain things. Um, and that's sort of very much the kind of the outward looking side of it. You get a business that comes along and they want to do a particular kind of savings account or they want to run a particular kind of a mortgage and we either already support something like that or we don't and there's configure build that has to be done and we you know we look at it and work with them as clients then there's kind of the other side of it which james was talking uh, about in terms of the actual sort of controlled change you know the spirit of the regulation in the uk certainly and it, that's pretty consistent everywhere right and if you can sort of um or it's pretty consistent for all businesses rather and if you can satisfy it for one you just need to be able to replicate what you're doing for other clients and there's a lot of you know custom technology that we've built in order to, to be able to to support that um, as you know, as our business grows and as our um, as a granularity of information that we that we think is sensible to store and share grows. Um, so it's sort of those two things, but it's um, there's definitely kind of an element of it ain't broke, don't fix it. Just know what you've got to do and do that well as a sort of bare minimum requirement, not do the bare minimum. To change a little bit, to go back, you, you mentioned something about how in the early days you didn't have to have sysadmins. That kind of alludes to perhaps now you do have some, and can you talk about if you, if you do, what are they doing? Um, are they supporting the Heroku platform? Do you do you have kind of a multi-cloud build out now? What, what's going on with that? So really, one of the major reasons we brought sysadmins in was around um, more of a sense of separation of concerns. One of the critical bits about the compliance side is being able to split, you know, the people who develop from the, the people who manage. And uh, as we grow as a company, there's a lot more management of things like permissions. You want to make sure that everyone in dev has access to you know everything up to the UAT set of environments, uh, maybe has some limited access to a pre-production environment, doesn't have access to a prod environment. If people move within the businesses, those need to be managed. Um, and again, it's not something you really want to be having to do by hand. So Really, we've been sort of taking the systems management side of things and giving that to a specific team because we're, we're simply large enough at this point that that's becoming a full-time job. There are certain things where we're also sort of doing certain things directly in AWS rather than at the Heroku layer, which kind of proxies down onto AWS as well, which 
as we as we essentially have gone into having multiple clients running um, and a great many more test environments and so forth, that that just becomes its own beast that needs managing. Particularly as we're you know trying to do cleverer things with stuff like Terraform and um, sort of infrastructure as code technologies like that. And we're looking to use quite a large number of environments at the moment. Um, we're probably looking right now at over three hundred apps with multiple dynos within those. Um, and so that's just quite a lot of stuff to manage at this point. Yeah, that's a pretty big deployment. Um, so do you use Terraform to manage your Heroku environments so you can kind of take a step back from that or pipelines or, or how do you manage 300 apps? Well, they're, they're sort of split across lots of different things. You know, so we have distinct environments in our, you know, any one environment is probably no more than a dozen or a couple of dozen different Heroku applications. Um so those are sort of managed through pipelines and in the the rest of it um, is then, you know, lots of different developer environments, test environments, bit of some dev infrastructure as well that people use. And that's when um, Terraform comes into it and has done increasingly so uh, as we sort of popped a few things up and down. Um, it's quite varied. I think one of the things is we're not particularly stuck to one way of doing things as we've gone, uh, particularly in our, you know, the, the further away you get from that sort of, controlled production uh, estate and there's a lot more experimentation and openness in terms of what's what is the best way of solving a particular problem and going forwards and that's something that we give developers sort of direct access to do um, so you know if they want to spin up an app and try something out you know, as long as they're outside of the, the regulated environment side of things we're perfectly happy for them to go and to go and do that you know, it doesn't have to come to the central devops team that's really cool. So you're giving the developers the ability to experiment in safe and sane ways with guide rails, um, but then also leveraging those same sort of guide rails in your production environments uh, with a different team to go ahead and manage the, the production environments because of the separation of concerns required by the regulated environment you're working in. Exactly. So how do you think about resilience and how do you think about building an app on top of Heroku that is highly resilient and highly available. The Heroku platform itself is is pretty darn good for that with all the self-healing stuff built into it. But have you built an additional layer on top of that to go ahead and help with that? Or, or what's your thought process around that? Uh, so we have some tools in place to do things like load management. So the volumes that are coming through on the platform and sort of bringing them up. Um, there's certainly been a, a situation where we're looking at basically no single points of failure. So everything is running at least sort of two systems um, so we can mm -hmm. do red-green. Um, one of the big areas we've been doing on top of that is the sort of monitoring side of things so that we know when uh, we're either not seeing processes running as expected or we are seeing more load than expected, getting that out to the support team has been hugely important. So we have a lot of metrics coming out of the system um, and a lot of alerting on top of that in order to, to jump on things. And so part of that has been pulling stuff from things like the Heroku APIs to look at sort of base metrics. But quite a lot of it has been metrics that come out of the, the R platform itself. So how many payments we're processing a second um, or are our batch processes running? As mentioned earlier, we're 24-7. So yeah, if it goes wrong at 1 a.m., um, and we're dealing with the sort of end-of-day process for a banking system, that's actually a critical time between sort of midnight and 4 a.m. It's not a quiet time in any way whatsoever, so you need to know if something's gone wrong at that point. Yeah, it reminds me of, of my, my early days building AWS infrastructure. Um, 
so many people ignored metrics and ignored uh, feeding information back out into some sort of observability system. Yeah, I think there's there's kind of also discovering what those metrics need to be. You know, yeah. we we've been on a real uh, journey on that. And from an engineering standpoint, you think you know you think about things in a certain way, and that's you, you sort of push that, and you know the system runs in a particular way. And then as it comes under sort of more sort of strain or talk just because of the real world hitting it, you suddenly start realizing, you know, you're, you don't have any sort of leading indicators and you've got to start figuring out how to get those out and how to analyze them in a, in a way that they can be useful. And that's definitely been an iterative process uh, that we've gone through. I think one of the other things we're finding is, you know, as we have different clients who have actually different businesses and different usage patterns and different load patterns on our on our estate, it's we don't always need the same alerting and we don't always need the same sort of view of the metrics. So kind of, again, understanding what the superset is, what can be cherry-picked. Um, it's a scientific art in, in many ways, I guess. There's also an element there of, as Amar mentioned earlier, because we're often in, we're integrating with a large number of like other third parties for things like payments, being able to know when the people downstream of us have problems is very important. You know, yeah. Some cases, it's, it'll be a third party that's actually managed by the client, but you know, we want to be talking to them and saying this other third party is having problems rather than them coming to us. So being proactive on that and just having a large number of them, we're, we're monitoring a lot of stuff, not necessarily with an ability to fix it. Going from metrics, it seems fairly easy to move into performance. How do you measure performance and how do you tune for performance? How do you look at, you know, growing the performance of your application? Do you look at that as more requests per second or faster requests per second or both or what? So I guess there's two very distinct sides to that, um, particularly with the banking application side of things. There's the performance of for an individual customer. You know, they're coming to the site, they're clicking through various forms, they're making you know, requests, things like credit checks. And each of those individual steps, you want to be as fast as possible so that the customers get a good experience. You're looking then at things like response times. That is quite sort of individual. Um, but then on the other hand, we have things like payment processing, which tends to be very spiky. For instance, mm-hmm. the end of month is often a big time for that. Um, and so you might be looking at 10 to 50x your normal load for those specific areas, sort of been in two areas there, one of which is very much sort of customer experience testing and the other one is more bulk batch load testing. Yeah, there's sort of other other angles on that, on batch jobs as well, where uh, if you're running a portfolio-wide calculation and you're trying to reduce the actual domain of information that you're pushing so that a calculation can be performed um, in a kind of reductive way, and you haven't quite figured out where the limits are for that, but you know you, you hit those things from time to time as well. And you've got to look at how do you actually make sure that that job can be done as quickly as possible because it's not because it is time sensitive, but actually because there's a queue of other things that are sitting behind it that will just never happen uh, because this thing can't run right now. And that particularly when you know you you build parts of the system that that have been running fine for like years, um, right? And then you scale and you scale and you scale and you suddenly like realize that ah, actually there's something now that, that needs to be revisited because one of our one of our main sort of operating assumptions has changed you know it's, it's one of those um, quite challenging aspects of everything particularly on large distributed systems like this yeah I've worked building you know back-end jobs and I've worked building front-end applications sounds like you guys have the best of both worlds we have the best of most worlds <laughs> 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 at the moment <laughs> 
we we've also had you know there's some sort of custom patterns that we've we've had to come up with as well where um you know we have our sort of main operational ledger database which very early on we had to sort of take the decision of actually managing that directly in AWS rather than running through sort of Heroku Postgres just because there were um there were some conversations we had with the architects um and there was some limitation on the right ahead logs which meant that you know in once in a blue moon sort of thing there might be a chance that we could have a window of sort of transactional, um, like a loss of transactional integrity in the way that we were needing to use database. And so, you know, we, we kind of had to sort of work on a number of things where we had you know, an application tier uh, within within the Heroku estate, a resilient data tier sitting, you know, elsewhere in AWS Direct, um, figure out, you know, what, what the right build packs were so that we could get... Dynos running correctly with uh, the appropriate tunneling in place and, and all that sort of stuff. It was, um, you know, and that sort of all adds to the whole sort of question around resilience because you've got to be able to make sure that you never, you never sort of lose a connection to your <laughs> to your database either, yeah. right? As you're going through, um, as you're going through that whole pattern, and we we ended up having to do something that was just a little non-standard, and then that took us down the path that we that we've since been on. And from that operational ledger, then, you know, we, we sort of publish information uh, that sort of becomes work for other services to do. And there are some pretty neat, resilient patterns that we built, which means that actually we're always, well, it's very difficult, effectively impossible for work to get sort of repeated or done out of sequence in how that stuff's architected, which is pretty neat, given that it's, you know, we're, we're essentially running on two separate clouds within uh, within what we do as well. But actually, there's sort of full integrity there. Um, and it's really sort of vast design exercise to make sure that that was done correctly and safely. So in the current times, to shift gears just a little bit, with everything that's going on in the world, how has something like COVID-19 impacted your business? You know, we're we're sort of a cloud-based business in that sense. We don't really own any anything you know we people have got laptops and monitors and stuff but that that's sort of it so in a sense it was most of our engineering team were, were really really happy working from home uh, when uh, when covid sort of kicked in um and you know as this whole lockdown scenario kind of progressed people it just sort of became a normal way of working um so in that sense you know we, we've been okay and i think lots of technical product companies like ourselves are um probably in a similar boat i think where we see a difference is our production volumes are, are obviously different because um, demands and consumer finance uh, are different now. Lenders' attitudes to risk uh, are different as well, uh, and that that all sort of um, clearly it it all adds up. Uh, there's also there's just a difference in you know essentially what use cases um, become higher demand uh, in this time, which is mm-hmm. simply that you know there's there's a lot more around sort of treating customers fairly and credit forbearance and and things like that. It's been a quite an exciting year in that sense, uh, and yeah. But I think a lot, a lot of our sort of control processes and the general policies that we had, they're, they're things that we've been able to sort of continue to demonstrate adherence to, uh, which are which is really really important from a banking controls and banking regulation perspective. Um, just because of the way those things are set up, despite people being at home rather than being in an office, that I think has been one of the uh, one of the highlights of the year in the in the sense in terms of sort of. The maturity of what we've created, not just in terms of software, but the overall sort of technical architecture of everything we've done. So, yeah, it sounds like that while no one could prepare for this, that the platform you built and the systems you built were resilient enough and were agile enough. So you could 
land on the ground on your feet and possibly running even to go ahead and make the changes you need to change to respond to this sort of a thing. Yeah, yeah, completely. And it's just being able to sort of deal with the unkind things the real world throws at you, which actually lots of, you know, we're, we're essentially an infrastructure provider in, in, in many ways. Um, you know, core banking is infrastructure for banking businesses and, and lending businesses and the sort of transaction processing uh, we do and the position keeping that we do is, is not something you can kind of just turn on and off, right? Because it's, it's no longer convenient or it's no longer sort of the direction that a business wants to head. Once you're sort of in, you're in. You have to be able to sort of maintain everything that's out there whilst adding on to it um, in a way that's just very sort of aware of the reality that you're in, you know, in 2020 or beyond, right? And last year was very different compared to this year in basically every possible way. <laughs> so it's uh, yeah. it was quite a, I don't think anyone really got settled or comfortable into just a nice sort of working pattern. Yeah. So things yeah. changed. So do you have any advice for anyone you know, looking to build a regulated application or or custom solutions with custom requirements. Um, anybody sort of undertaking a similar journey to yours, or or just building anything in general? I think if you are in a B two B space like we are in an enterprisey B two B space, it's really important to make sure you're clear on the problem that you're solving, and as early as you can, having some sort of early stage client or marquee client that you can say, look, and these guys are using it. We've built this, we're solving this problem, and these guys are using it, or these guys are going to use it. And that's not always easy to do because it's companies, particularly regulated companies, are risk averse uh, when it comes to new products and new new technologies. But that's kind of the first step. Everything else is is then sort of if you if you're good at solving the sorts of problems that <laughs> that you're setting out to solve, then you know you, you will have a very I think a really solid chance of succeeding at it um but you know i don't think there's like a magic recipe for it i think you know there's you are just going to get knocked around quite a lot in the process uh, you know we certainly have right james <laughs> very much so i mean that's that's one of the critical things that come up for me is particularly on the regulated side where you are looking at things like compliance being a critical part of the the system don't try and bolt it on afterwards don't sort of build your here's a lovely way of like taking out a loan or opening an account and then go, oh, and now we need to work out how to prove that that account was a valid account. You need to have it right in your data model right at the start um, so that it all bubbles up through the system rather than layering on top in sort of much the same way as like security needs to be sort of a mindset and integral to the system. Um, Compliance works in the same way. You'll find it very hard to do it after the fact if you haven't thought about it up front. That's a great point. That's a fantastic point. Um, and I guess that goes back to that truism of know what problem you're solving. And it sounds like you might be solving for multiple problems. One would be, you know, how to provide this product to your customers. But the other one is how to do so in a secure and compliant manner. And having that that in your head from the beginning while you're designing will help you deliver that product more efficiently over time. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, your your ultimate responsibility is around making make sure your clients are successful. Mm-hmm. Right. So if you're not able to provide them with something that sort of meets the full set of or their, their base minimum needs, then you're not actually going to set them up for success. And your success, you know, as a as a vendor or as any company is is entirely linked to your client's success and your customer's success. So you you've got to have that whole sort of picture in mind. Uh, I remember, you know, in our sort of um in our kind of early days uh when it was 
the other James, uh, who's you know, my my co-founder, James uh, James King. A lot of it was sort of software prototyping, right? And thinking around, okay, we can functionally do this, we can functionally do that, uh, we can write an interest rate calculator that'll allow us to, you know, reshape accounts in lots of different ways, or or whatever it was. Um, and you know, we often had to just say, okay, and now let's just stop. Eyes on the prize. What are we actually trying to solve for? Yeah. And uh, let's just thin it down. And it's a hard discipline to have. Um, and it's doubly hard when actually you see lots of different market opportunities as well. And uh, say, okay, uh, as a product, as a platform, we could very easily solve for this particular sort of payments pattern that people are starting to use uh, more and more. We could, you know, easily provide an interface that lets companies lend to you know that market segment in a lot easier way. And you just can't do all of that all at the same time because you might not be at that point of being good enough on on everything else with the clients you're trying to serve. And I think that's that's the sort of key discipline that you need to have. Well, thank you so much for your time today, Amar and James. And it was wonderful talking to you. And I hope we get to chat again. Great. Thanks very much, Greg. It's great to be here. Thanks, Greg. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Codish Podcast. Codish is produced by Heroku, the easiest way to deploy, manage, and scale your applications in the cloud. If you would like to learn more about Codish or any of Heroku's podcasts, please visit heroku.com slash podcasts.